This faith-affirming podcast is a production of Latter-day Radio for the enlightenment and illumination of its audience. Originally broadcast on KLO Radio in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com. Why do we study the Old Testament? I mean, it's really old, and we've got modern revelation. We've got the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of the Great Price. We've got the New Testament. And this, this year, of course, the Old Testament is a course of study and gospel doctrine classes throughout the church. They just talked about uh, King Hezekiah and the, and the, and the tunnel and uh, Isaiah and all of those things. So why do we do this every four years? The short way to say it, now that you have brought to mind the ideas of boredom, falling asleep, uh, (laughs) difficulties in understanding the topic, the real way to think of the Old Testament is that in times before ours, when you couldn't just go buy any book you wanted because books were scarce, because there were no printing presses, At times when, if you wanted the equivalent of a book, it would cost you a couple of months' salary at least to have a scribe copy it, word for word. And that's how they got books, a bunch of of scribes in in a room taking dictation. That's right. And so when you lived at a time like that, when books were very scarce and very difficult to come by, you would spend your time with only the books that mattered the very most. A compilation of the books that mattered the very most to the Jews for their entire history. Their entire history. And so you begin with the book of Genesis, for example. It has the beginning of everything. The whole import of the book of Genesis is that it's a book about beginnings. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of the earth, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of evil in the world, the beginning of the Jewish Religion, the beginning of a promised people. Exactly, Abraham's Abraham's seed. Uh, I remember learning about what is called the three the three pillars of eternity: creation, the fall, and the atonement. And I think that's thematically what we find in the Old Testament, but it's not always presented in that fashion creation, fall, and atonement. But I think that's something that we need to focus on when we study the scriptures. And I think it's particularly important in the Old Testament. It is. The book of Genesis is sadly looked upon by many people as a bad example of of science or history in the sense that that the timing doesn't really quite work. For, For example, God creates the heaven and the earth. And in the beginning, the earth was without form and void. Then he divides the waters, and then he creates light. And then after that, 
you wind up with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, I don't know about you, Greg, but most people today don't think that the sun and the moon and the stars were created after the earth. But that's not the point of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is not meant to be some accurate, down-to-the-detail rendition of everything that happened in the beginning. The point is that the earth is the centerpiece. It's described first. God created it. He created it for us. That is the message, and that's why the earth is mentioned first. And that's why after the creation, after the creative acts, we have descriptions of many different firsts that that happen because this shows where things came from, which was a very important point. Another point that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about Genesis is that it describes that man, that humanity, if you will, is the centerpiece of God's creations. In chapter 1, verse 20, if you read it literally in the earliest Hebrew that we have available, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would say, Elohim, the gods, let us make humans in our image and after our likeness. And the word likeness here is just like the likeness that a statue would have for the person who is depicted in the statue, or just like a stamp would be the impression of the seal that created the stamp in a letter. From the original. From the original. And just in case you joined us, this is Latter-day Radio, and we're talking about the Old Testament. So, Martin, continue. Sorry. No worries. Here in chapter 1 of Genesis, in in verses uh, 26 and 27, it talks about God creating humans in their likenesses. And I say there because the word God is Elohim. And that's a plural word. El is the word for God. And the rest is a plural. Elohim. This is a plural word. The gods created the humans after their image. That's a very important point. And... You might say, well, this is, this is just figurative, but we know that it's not because the exact same language parallel is used in chapter 5, where it says that Adam lived and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. It's a parallelism. It's the same wording to depict the same kind of creation. As God has children, so did Adam have children, beginning with this first son. And from there, we we start to have these oblique references to figures we don't know too much about, but who were very 
important to the early Jews. One of those is Enoch, mentioned in Genesis 5, chapter, or verse 23. It talks about him and that he left, he was taken, God, God took him. And there were a number of traditions about why Enoch was taken. Then we get to chapter 6, which talks about giants in the land, which is also a fascinating thing. These are Nephilim, the, the giants, the first part of which is interesting for Latter-day Saints because if you want to say it slowly, it's Nephi limb. And Nephi is a big guy. He's a strong guy. And so his name meant who he was. He, he was a large person, a large man. And then, you know, b- before I jump into more of these stories, like, uh, like Noah and the Flood, I, I had to toss out a couple of ideas. The first one is that nobody knows when all of these things happened, but there are traditional dates. Have you ever raised your hand in Sunday school class and said, so just when were Adam and Eve alive? You kind of get a blank stare. Somebody might say you don't know. Somebody's going to come up with some unusual number. It kind of depends on who you talk to, but there are Jewish traditions about these things. And one of the more fascinating ones is about the creation. If you talk to traditional Jewish rabbis, they will tell you that the earth was created a little bit before 4000 BC. That's where this tradition and and the exact numbers that Bishop Usher had brought us to the point where we say the earth is 6,000 years old, which incidentally I don't believe and I don't think science supports, but there are those who still try to cling to that, and that's fine. The point of the book of Genesis, again, is not to get precise times or dates, but to understand that God is responsible for things. And that we should be grateful to him for what he's done. Precisely. But if you were to talk to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, he would tell you that Adam and Eve were created in about 3,924 B.C. Give or take a couple of weeks, right, Martin? (laughs) We don't know all of the details, but we're going to try to explore more topics about the Old Testament, why we study it, why it's important to Latter-day Saints, and how it can strengthen our testimony of God's plan for His children. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. back here for our second segment today on the Old Testament here on Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, broadcasting, like I like to say, from the intersection of faith and freedom. The Old Testament, when I say those words, do you get a little sleepy? Here's a question I'd like to ask. Uh, How many of you 
out there have read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, please raise your hands. Okay, Martin raised his hand. So, Martin, we were talking a little bit about why certain things are in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis, because as, as, as I like to point out, all the scriptures take us to that point where we can understand that the, the Lord's plan involves the creation, the fall, and the atonement. Those themes are throughout all of the scriptures, aren't they? They are. And that is the common theme. One of the points of the books of the Old Testament is to give the Jews hope. And they were given hope by being told that their God was in charge of everything. They were given hope by being told the explanations for why there were trials and troubles, difficulties, sin, and evil in the world. But also that there were prophets who would speak to them on behalf of God. And one of those early prophets we just mentioned was Enoch, although there's very little about him. In the Old Testament, he is the most quoted prophet, or at least the book attributed to him as the most quoted book in the New Testament, which is fascinating to me because the book of Enoch as we have it today has uh, gone through several different morphs and, and has a, n a number of things in it that are just outlandish. But the earlier versions must have been great because pa the Jews like them. Passed through many hands, in Exa other words. Exactly so. And all of the Old Testament is like that. It, it has gone through many, many different uh, incarnations, edits, changes, however you'd like to describe them. And there's not a set of metal plates with all of the uh, Old Testament on it. <laughs> that would be the, the understatement. Of the approximately 900 Dead Sea Scrolls um, books, about a third of them are Old Testament books. And quite a few of those have significant differences from the Old Testament books as we have them today, showing that even from 200 B.C. approximately uh, to the time at which we find ourselves today, there have been some significant changes in the Old Testament. I suppose that supports the idea we believe the Bible to be correct as far as it's translated correctly. It, that would be a big takeaway, absolutely. One of the hallmarks that scholars look at to try to decide if a book in the Bible is very, very early or is a later edition, if you will, is how it treats God, how God is described. And by that, to be very direct, if God is described as a person, very distinctly, then it's an early book. If he's not described that way, then it's probably a later book where, where there were some edits and changes. I call that whittling on the porch. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 that we've already discussed, talked about, talk about God 
making humans in the image of the gods. That describes or implies that God looks like a person or that the gods looked like people, if you will. Or the people look like the creators that created them in the first place. That would certainly be a corollary. There are other examples of that in the Old Testament that are fascinating to take a peek at. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 33, says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And this is Yahweh, Jehovah, appears to Abraham at the sacred trees of Mamre. And how is the Lord and the two angels that are with him, how are they described? Quote, Abraham looks up and he saw three men standing there. Close quote. This is a contemporary English version of of the Bible that I'm quoting from. So there are two angels that look like men. Then there's Jehovah. He also looks like a man. Similar to what the brother of Jared saw. Very much so, although there are some differences because all three of them sit down and eat. And Latter-day Saints would say, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how can Jehovah, before he was born, you know, when he was a spirit, how can he sit down and, and eat with Abraham? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, maybe this is a description of... God the Father, I, I, I don't know. But typically, we in Latter-day Saint land like to say that when you're talking about God in the Old Testament, you're talking about, about Jesus. And certainly the early Christians believe that. So there are some questions that are just unanswerable. But one thing that does happen here in Genesis is that God in the, at Jehovah, that God appears to Abraham, and then he talks to him, and he tells Sarah and and Abraham that they're going to have a child. And another thing that happens in this particular event is that it doesn't quite depict God as all-knowing in the sense that we have him, him now. The gist of what happens is that... Yahweh is talking to Abraham and he says, you know, I've heard a bunch of really bad things are going on down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to go down and check it out and see if all this is really real. In case you just joined (laughs) us, this is Latter-day Radio and Martin's going to take us back to Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) So that's not the way that Christians and Jews see God today. Jehovah doesn't have to go check something out in Sodom and Gomorrah to know what's going on there. He, he already knows. But that's not the way it's depicted here, here in Genesis. So here again, the idea that God knows the most and is the most powerful, but maybe doesn't know everything is an early concept of God that has been jettisoned by most people. But you find it here in Genesis. And he is depicted as a person, as a man. 
another thing that has been jettisoned by most of, of the Jewish and Christian world. And, and so that's a, a takeaway here that, that God is depicted as a divine person. Now, somebody's saying, well, wait a minute, I, I, read, a, I read something and said angels. So, well, there are a lot of things that sort of get watered down in the translation. Here's, here's one that translators just have nightmares over as they translate. Genesis chapter 32, because they don't want to turn God into a man, but they just kind of have to in Genesis chapter 32. Starting in verse 22, Jacob takes his two wives and his two concubines and his 11 children, and he crosses the Jabbok River. But they all go across, and Jacob decides to stay behind. And so then a man comes and wrestles with Jacob until just before daybreak. That's the word that was translated into English, wrestles. Wrestles with God. And, and this is not some figurative wrestle. This is not, wow, oh God, I'm having a hard time thinking. I'm wrestling with a concept or I'm wrestling with an idea. Because it says, when the man who was wrestling with Jacob sees that he's not winning at this point, he hits Jacob on the hip and throws it out of joint. And so the man says... Let me go. Daylight's coming. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And Jacob says, what's your name? And God won't tell him, but says that he will bless him. And then he describes this whole event, he, Jacob, describes this whole event as struggling with God and prevailing in the sense that he didn't die. Jacob says about this event and about this place, quote, I have seen God face to face and I am still alive, close quote. So I will name this place Peniel. Penny means to see, and L is the word for God. I've seen God in person, and I'm still alive. That's what Jacob named the place. And the sun rose up as Jacob was leaving Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So I guess God's a pretty good wrestler because he beat Jacob, which which we could believe. But the point here isn't so much the wrestling match or why it happened, but it's Jacob and Genesis portray God as a person, as a physical man, not just something that looks like a man, but a physical man that Jacob can wrestle with. He can wrestle with him. He's solid. Just like every other person, this is no spirit. This is a physical, human-looking God. That's something that just drives a lot of Christians crazy. And the translators are I can't translate this literally. I can't do it. But that's what we have here. 
Well, there's more to come here on Latter-day Radio, another segment out of the way. And uh, we're only through the book of Genesis. Uh, We've got a few more books to cover here, Martin, when we get back. So uh, come back after the break and join us here on Latter-day Radio on 1430 World Class Talk on KLO. We're not done yet. More faith-affirming podcast content on its way. Stay with us. We're back here on Latter-day Radio for our final segment today of our first hour of Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard and Martin Tanner here is enlightening us about the Old Testament and we asked a, a poll earlier of how many who've actually read it from beginning to end. And I know a number of people are called to be gospel doctrine teachers. And this year they're studying the Old Testament. And our gospel doctrine teacher, in our words, stood up and confessed to all of us. She said, I've never read the Old Testament, but I'm going to do it now, now that I have this calling. I think from some of the fun things that uh, Martin shared with us last segment uh, gives me hope and also an understanding as to why we have modern every modern prophets and apostles, because if we just relied on uh, ancient scripture, we would be left wondering what it all means. And uh, that's why we should live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and why we believe that. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does not reveal. We believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's, I think, the lesson we should take away from this. But there's still lots to learn about the Old Testament. I especially love the stories of the prophets, Samuel and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, uh, and, and Elijah and the marvelous things that they did. But I always wonder, uh, we read in the Book of Mormon where Lehi talked about the fact that how the the people of Jerusalem and they were they killed the prophets and they persecuted them. I don't, I'm not sure that we really know all the details about that. So, but Martin, you told me a story here earlier today about poor old Isaiah. We know that the Lehi tells us, Lehi and Nephi tell us, great are the words of Isaiah. And apparently they were so great that he wouldn't recant them and it cost him his life. It cost him his life. Maybe we should talk about Isaiah right now. That, that would be a great subject. One of the study Bibles that, that you might want to get Uh, or one of the versions of the Bible that you might want to get to help you in your studies, might be a better way to say it, is the contemporary English version. It makes the Old Testament far more understandable than it is in our ancient, archaic King James Version, which is really contained, uh, or which is really written in language that's even a hundred years earlier than that. I mean, this is 500 year old English that we're trying to wade through about ancient Jewish stories. Get a hold of a contemporary English version, uh, or if you prefer one that's still in modern English, but 
is a little a little more um, Bible like. Bible like. That's a great way to say it. I love the contemporary English version. Another good one is the New Revised Standard Version. It is sort of the scholarly uh, Bible now. If, if you were to go to Harvard Divinity School or um, the, the Yale's Divinity School or the Princeton Theological Seminary or any of the great seminaries, they would have you study the New Revised Standard Version. That's the scholar's Bible in plain English. It's considered to be a very uh, direct translation, very much as the King James Bible is, which is one of the reasons that we like it. And yet, it's much more easy to understand than than our King James. I'm not saying get rid of the King James. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Um, but it's it, it would definitely help. I told you the story of when we were in Germany, we returned, and uh, Martin Luther's Bible was gone. It was gone out of LDS meeting houses, and they're using the new Einheitsbible, or the, Ein, uh, the Unity Bible, which uh, was a project that the Catholics and the Protestants worked on together with a few other scholars, including Latter-day Saint scholars, translating uh, Martin Luther's version, which Joseph Smith said was the best modern translation, into modern German. Frankly, as a missionary who learned from that Bible, I understand the old German better than I do the new German, because I'm I'm not a German, but I learned my German from the Book of Mormon and the and the German Bible. Probably why people in German say, "Oh, you sound so old-fashioned, so altmodisch." <laughs> well, Joseph Smith really liked the German Bible. He thought it was great. He he was definitely not um, witted to the King James Version at, at all. But I know why we are in the LDS faith, because we put so much time and effort into cross-referencing and footnoting and understanding. And then with the um, Joseph Smith translation, so-called, I, I, I say that for two reasons. First first of all, it was a project that Joseph Smith never quite finished. And second of all, it, it's... Um, it's been in other people's hands. It's, it's been in other people's hands, but it's also not really a translation. It's more like... Um, a, an explanation. An explanation or a divinely inspired uh, expansion or a commentary or, or something along those lines rather than a direct translation. But out of that, of course, we did get uh, the Book of Moses... And uh, the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, which is now canonized for us. But I understand that one of the reasons that we like the, the, the King James Bible is because it was translated not to be read, but to be heard being read. Because those people back then did not have Bibles of their own, but they could hear it read in Elizabethan English, sounding very much like, William Shakespeare. In case you just joined us, this is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 uh, KLO World Class Talk. So, Martin, I'm sorry if I interrupted your train of thought. You know where you're going. Not at all. I hopefully know where I'm going. Isaiah, we were going to talk about Isaiah. In Hebrew, his name is Yeshayahu, uh, which means which means literally Jehovah is salvation. 
in Greek, it's Isaias, and that's where our English word Isaiah came from. He lived about 2,700 years ago, give, give or take a little bit. He was in the 8th century B.C. in the kingdom of Judah. 100 years before Lehi. That's right. That, that's exactly right. He was during the time frame immediately preceding all the horrendous things that, that happened to the Jews. And both Christians and Jews consider the book of Isaiah as part of their biblical canon. The fascinating part of it is that you have such radically different views of what some of the verses say. For example, in Isaiah 7, uh, verse 14, you have in the King James Version, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, just that sentence has a great deal of controversy surrounding it. And the, the, the Jews say, well, it just says young woman. It doesn't say a virgin. In a way, that's a, that's a tempest in a teapot. Because at the time that Isaiah was written, that phrase young woman and somebody who was a virgin of marriageable age. And so whether it was the literal word virgin or the paraphrased idea matters not. It had the same meaning. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. A fascinating thing is that he prophesied for about 44 years. That's a long time as tenure uh, as a prophet. That's an incredible amount of time. He was married. We don't often think of Old Testament prophets as being married. His wife was also considered to be a prophet, according to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. Because in that verse, she's referred to as a prophetess. We don't have her prophecies recorded, but that was how she was viewed. They had at least two children. Both of them were given very symbolic names, which when we read today, we either smile or um, cough and stutter over them because they're very difficult names. But they both had prophetic meanings for Israel. And the names of those children were given to Isaiah as part of his prophecies. It's uh, fascinating that, that um, after Isaiah prophesied against the Assyrian king who was out after Israel, that, and, and his name was Shereshinib, which is a derivative of the word cherub or angel, so he had a, a high view of himself. But he lost 180,000 men, and he never tried to conquer uh, the Jews again. Before we run out of time, I wanted to mention about the martyrdom of, of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied some pretty harsh things about King Manasseh, about Jewish King Manasseh. And... 
some of the details about the martyrdom of Isaiah are found in a book called The Martyrdom of Isaiah, which is not in the Bible, but has some details about Isaiah's life that are not there. Isaiah would not recant what he had prophesied, so he was rolled up in tree bark, tied with cords, and then the... Isaiah and the tree bark were placed between two pieces of wood, and there was an enormous saw that would look something like a large pendulum. It was a wooden saw made of very uh, hard wood, and Isaiah was sawn in half while he was alive rather than recant. He gave his testimony with his life. So I guess we know now why the words of Isaiah were so important. He gave his life for them. Lehi and Nephi tell us, great are the words of Isaiah. I suppose they were so important that we should really pay attention to what Isaiah had to say to us. We should. One of the reasons it's hard for us to pay attention is because sometimes Isaiah is difficult to understand. Get a hold of the New Revised Standard Version or the Contemporary English Version, and Isaiah will come alive and be exciting and understandable to you. This podcast has been produced by Latter Day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.